This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a four year old class action lawsuit against the Louisiana Department of Corrections was settled this week with impacts for prisoners on death row. The Orleans Parish School Board has filed a motion in civil district court seeking permission to subpoena records for the Singleton Charter School. And the New Orleans School District will not implement the new state policy regarding COVID exposure and quarantines. And we have more on the mutual aid groups who are working to fill the needs for immigrant communities hard hit from Ida. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Health reporter Philip Kiefer's here. Hey, Philip. Good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Good morning. Nick, up first in criminal justice, a class action lawsuit filed in 2017 on behalf of prisoners on death row was settled this week, the terms of which provide prisoners with more out-of-cell time, the ability to socialize with one another, and lots more opportunities for recreation and classes. Can you give us some background on what it was like prior to this decision? Yeah, so I mean, really, it, you would want to go back to before 2017 when the when the lawsuit was filed. Um, you know, at that point, if you were on death row, it was you were in solitary confinement. Um, so that meant in a very small cell with no windows for 23 hours a day, um, with no ability to interact with, with anyone socially. So those, those prisoners were allowed out of their cell for, for one hour and they could sort of walk the hall of their tier. And then three days a week, they were let outside into, uh, I, th- I think they were called exercise pens, but, but were really, what they were were just 10 by 10 uh, fenced in areas, uh, you know, out, out outside. Um, and, and they were, you know, at the, I think occasionally they would be able to, to talk to one another through these um, fenced uh, uh, cages that, mm. that, that were outside. And that, that was, that was really it. Um, so the, the effects on the, the prisoners, you know, that the lawsuit described when it was filed in 2017 were really debilitating uh, prisoners, you know, sort of losing their ability to talk, uh, losing their ability to communicate with one, one another or anyone. Um, and, you know, the, the, some of these prisoners were already diagnosed with, with serious mental illness, schizophrenia. Um, uh, one of them had, had a, a, you know, a brain aneurysm that, that limited, you know, sort of paralyzed one side of his body. And so when when it got hot, there's no no air conditioning on death row. So when when it got hot, um, it would really it would be very painful for 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 him, and and this inability to, to move or have any sort of physical you know therapy for for his medical condition was you know exacerbated. And so this is kind of, you know there's around 70 people on death row in, in Louisiana right now. And these issues you know each one was unique. So this went after this lawsuit was filed, you know, in 2017, really shortly after uh, the Louisiana Department of Corrections announced new policies where uh, prisoners on death row were going to be let out for for four hours a, a day um, and and kind of given given some congregate yard time, meaning there was a one big area out, outdoor area where an entire tier would be let out and they could could interact with one another, um, among other things. So. 
So really the changes started started happening right after the lawsuit was filed in 2017. It sounds like the fact that this lawsuit was filed in the first place makes Louisiana an outlier already. You know, I'm not an expert on, on, on what other states, um, how other states handle their, their death row prisoners. Um, I, one of the issues in, in the lawsuit was the fact that there, these are not disciplinary measures being taken against these prisoners. These are, these are the conditions they're, they're, they're confined to strictly because of, of their sentence. Um, so that, that was one of the, of the challenges in, in the suit. And, and like I say, I'm not positive how that works in, in other states. What we do know is that historically Louisiana has had some of the highest rates of, of solitary confinement in, the, in their prisons. So, you know, a 2018 study found that, that about, you know, somewhere around like 19% of prisoners when they, when they asked the department for records were in solitary confinement at one time in, in you know, in the state prison system, hmm. um, which was about four times the national average. Wow. Um, so since then they've, they've, they've definitely started they've become conscious of this and have started making some efforts to to decrease the the use of solitary in in the prison system you know i think it's kind of i think people are debating the effectiveness of of some of these measures but definitely this this change on death row is sort of in in that broader context of reducing the use of solitary confinement okay it sounds like they'd already started You, you outlined a few of the changes they'd already made what still needs to happen you know, it's not entirely clear to me, and it's not, I don't think, entirely clear to the attorneys who are agreeing to this settlement what has, what is totally, you know, done and what kind of still needs to be done. They were saying that the, the process was that they would um, sort of discuss a, a potential um, agreement, you know, one, some portion of the agreement with the Department of Corrections, and then they, the, the Department of Corrections would sort of start implementing it before the agreement was actually finalized as it, you know, was this, uh, this week. Um, but they were saying, you know, a lot of this stuff during COVID has been put on hold, you know, the, I'm not entirely sure all the measures that were taken on, on death row specifically to limit the spread, but you imagine a lot of the, the congregate, uh, um, type activities were were kind of reduced um, in order to limit contact. Some of the things like there, one of the, one of the terms is for for group worship, and also I think the lawyers haven't been able to get in and visit, so it's harder to know exactly what has what has been implemented. The department basically says that you know all of these things were already in the works even prior to the lawsuit being filed. Mm. Um, I don't think that that is necessarily the perspective of the, the attorneys who, who filed the suit. I think that they, they believe it was really impetus for a lot of these changes. But um, anyway, I think it, it, so one, one of the terms of the agreement is that the Department of Corrections is going to be required to report certain things to, to these attorneys um, on a monthly basis. They'll continue to have access to uh, their clients on death row until there'll be this monitoring period. And that's going to last for at least four years. So. Hmm. If these terms aren't being um, agreed to, there's there's sort of le- legal recourse for uh, for these um, prisoners. It's similar in setup to like the the consent decree uh, over the jail. Then yeah, yeah exactly. Like except it. for there's just no kind of broader federal you know in- intervention. It's kind of up to you know up to the plaintiffs' attorneys to to monitor. When's right. when's the last time a prisoner was executed? So. It wasn't, it, it was over a decade ago in 2010. Um, 
so I think there's you know a number of reasons for that. I think there's some some litigation, um, both individual litigation and, and kind of broader litigation around the, the use of the death penalty in Louisiana, um, and then it's been very difficult for for the state to buy lethal injection drugs. Um, so that that has been kind of and you know and I think some people would point to basically just a lack of political will. Um, to that, that kind of public opinion may be shifting a little bit um, away from uh, support of, of executing people and spending state resources in that way. So mm. I think it's kind of a, a mix. Well, yeah, and the, and the parishes that, that sort of produce the, you know, the highest volume of prisoners uh, don't, don't pursue a lot of death penalty cases, or, Orleans Parish in particular. Yeah. And solitary confinement is under a, a little bit more of a microscope in Louisiana. What what's going on with some changes to solitary confinement? Well, yeah, like I said, you know, there's kind of been this acknowledgement by the Department of Corrections that that it's been overused in the past, and that there haven't been um, kind of su- uh, sufficient guidelines in place to, to limit its use. And so there are some internal policies that have changed in terms of how they administer disciplinary sanctions and how they um, use solitary as a response to, to disciplinary infractions, which, and it's still, it's certainly still being used. I don't want to give you know, anyone the impression that, it, that, it's, that they've stopped using it. Um, and we've seen in, in a few prisons this, you know, even just this year, uh, prisoners going on hunger strike for, for the conditions uh, of their confinement after being you know, disciplined and they say being held much longer than they, they said they were going to be held in, in, in solitary confinement. So, right. um, but but there is some some acknowledgement on the Department of Corrections side that, that they have been overusing it traditionally. Uh, last year, I believe in the legislature, there was a law passed that uh, pregnant women can no longer be held in solitary confinement except for under very extreme circumstances. But then another bill this year that would, that would have prevented people with serious mental illness from being held in solitary, that bill did not pass. Um, mm. So, you know, there's still still certainly um, uh, it's still certainly a live issue, people, and and there's a there's a number of lawsuits around this issue as well uh, in, at, at David Wade Correctional specifically around holding people with serious mental illness in solitary confinement and, and uh, you know the really really terrible effects that that, that can have on someone. All right, thank you, Nick. Yeah, thank you, Marta. The James M. Singleton Charter School has been out of the news for a little while for obvious reasons, but it's back in the news now. There's um, a new development in the lawsuit. They have filed against the school district to keep them from closing the school. Get us up to date again of what what's going on. Sure, so, so Singleton, I think, is has kind of been a struggling school for a while. They've had a number of issues and concerns that the district has raised, whether it's, you know, regarding finances or um, you know, they have an F rating from the state, academically speaking. And they also um, had this, you know, this big issue this spring that we certainly talked about on the podcast where it was found that they had um, an employee who was conducting phony background checks, um, which allowed people who had criminal records to work at the school. So numerous issues going on there, um, and all of which led Superintendent Henderson Lewis to tell the school that he was going to revoke their charter over the summer. Um, and when he did that in June, the school responded by filing a lawsuit, um, and they were granted an order from a judge, a temporary restraining order that halted that process. So we've kind of been in this holding pattern, um, which allowed the school to open on time for this school year. 
but now here we are with a with a little update. Um, the district is seeking financial records from the school's financial contractors. So it'll be very interesting to see how that goes in front of a judge. And just just a note on the, on that lawsuit. Um, sort of that that ruling granting the the temporary restraining order was not fully based on the merits of the uh, of the district's arguments as I remember it correctly it was mostly it was mostly uh, about the timing of the district's announcement basically the, the way they announced it it was almost July uh, schools start in August um, you know the the process of revoking takes about takes about a month just to move it through the board and on top of that the the district would not, in this case, have been able to do what its usual solution is to get this done quickly, which is to you know take over the school itself because the school is owned, the 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 building is is privately owned. Um, so they would have been you know left without a school, without an operator, with a week to go before school started again or something like that. You know, and teachers came back to their jobs. So yeah, it's not it, the the judge, as I remember, didn't really you know didn't really argue with with the district's reasoning for closing the school, just the district's timing. Yeah, and, she she certainly criticized the timing, and then uh, you know she also clearly she was looking a little bit at the charter contract and saying, um, you know, I I think you guys do have the right to mediation, so she sent them to mediation, um, which I believe is still ongoing, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Okay. Oh, and so then this is this is a new development. While mediation is still occurring, they're asking the district is asking for subpoenas. Yeah, I mean, the di- this is a this is a power play by the district right here. Right. Um, so Singleton's in its final year of its charter contract, um, and with an F letter grade and all these other issues, I would say it's pretty unlikely for the school to receive a new contract for next year. Um, and I, and I do think the district is you know trying to. A little bit of a power move here by asking for these financial records through this um, legal process. Rattling their sabers. So they're saying that there's money, the YMCA that owns the building owes money to the district. What kind of money are we talking about? Yeah, so they're, they're saying that the YMCA, which has a charter contract to operate Singleton in this school, owes um, about $1.1 million to the school and other programs. Um, and the way that we interpreted that, that those were the most recent numbers as of an um, audit that ended last year. Mm. Yeah, the way we interpret that is that when, when you get federal and state funding for schools, you are supposed to spend that money on very specifically on certain types of programs or certain types of you know teacher salaries, et cetera. So I, I think that's what they're looking into. Yeah, yeah. It's basically what this subpoena, what the subpoena is proposed to do. You know, there was this audit that made reference to you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, more than a million dollars owed to the school and quote other programs. It didn't really break out school versus other programs entirely. Uh, but so the district is is going to the accounting firm. It wants to send an subpoena, a subpoena to the accounting firm that actually did the audit another accounting firm that the school uses and the school's financial management contractor. Uh, Because these three entities were all involved in the creation of this audit and these findings. The district wants, essentially wants to know what more information about exactly what this money is um, and and where it came from and what what it was supposed to go to. You know, basically the the district is saying if this money is owed to the school, it's by definition public money. So it, it, it so by definition, 
the Dryads YMCA is withholding money that, you know, that, 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 that is taxpayer money. So, uh, you know, getting back to Marta describing it as power play, you know, it can be interpreted that way. It also is, it, you know, this information probably also bolsters the district's case that this, this school, that Dryads is, is not financially responsible enough to be dealing with public money. Okay, and what, are, what is the response from Singleton? So Singleton has maintained that because, you know, the Dryads YMCA run Singleton, um, that their house in this building, that they're one entity, and if they're one entity, that they cannot owe themselves money. Mm-hmm. Um, which, an interesting part of that argument is that they actually, you know, have taken steps in the last year to separate the school from the Y because of those financial issues um, and, and problems with them not properly separating cash. So, you know, Charles and I were talking about it the other day, and it, it kind of seems like, you know, Singleton's going to, or the Y is going to play to whatever angle is most advantageous here. But, you know, the, these are supposed to be two separate programs. Yeah, most, if not all, other charter operators, they don't, they don't have another, you know, charitable or business purpose like the Dryads YMCA does. Dryads YMCA also owns the YMCA. So, so when, when you're dealing with other charter operators, all the money that, that's, that they have, that's all school money for sure. Um, with the Dryads YMCA, they have a lot of, you know, it's, it's much more commingled and, and harder to, to sort of figure out what, you know, which, which dollar goes in which pot. And, and they also run a pre-K program. So when we're thinking about that, other programs, quote, that are owed money like i think that that's a possible you know part of this issue yeah um, and then this is just kind of a side note but like what what would be really a question and potentially part of this issue is like you know is is the ymca charging rent to the charter school or something like that all right well marta let's move on to um the news in covid and quarantining there was an announcement from the state about a new policy regarding exposure to quarantine and allowing kids back into school. And NOLA Public Schools has um, pivoted from that and said they're going to do go their own way. What what's the background? Right. So on Wednesday, State Superintendent Cade Brumley came out and announced that um, he was going to implement a quote unquote parent choice policy um, that would allow parents to decide if their child who had been exposed to a COVID case um, would return to school or quarantine. This is very much going against, you know, the health, the recommendations from the Louisiana Department of Health, the recommendations from the CDC, um, which recommend that students who are exposed to a positive COVID case quarantine. Quarantine rules have changed a little bit in the last year since we now have vaccines. So older students and staff members who are vaccinated and asymptomatic um, can return to school. But unvaccinated students, which, you know, is basically half the school population, um, are supposed to quarantine after an exposure. Um, And the district, New Orleans Public School District, said that they are absolutely against this policy change and that they will not implement it. And what was their rationale at the state level? Why were they saying they wanted to change? Superintendent Brumley said that, you know, he's concerned about students who are missing multiple days of school, possibly weeks of school, if they're being put into multiple quarantines from being exposed. Um, but, you know, I think the, the local district here thought that was too much of a risk to possibly snowball the risk effects to other students. <laughs> and give us an update again on the latest numbers, though, you know, we have to put the big caveat next to them, the big asterisk next to the numbers. Right. So this week we had um, 99 COVID cases reported, um, which is high, you know, three times as high as the week prior. 
but however, very, very much lower before um, Ida hit. So, you know, it's interesting. I don't know, Philip, if you have any thoughts on this. Like, we're clearly coming out of this Delta surge, but, you know, did Ida help us with that or was this going to be our natural trend anyway? Because I know epidemiologists were very worried about exposure during evacuations and during the storm. I'm still totally wondering that myself and it's actually on my list of things to start asking more about because um i'm kind of scratching my head about what what ida did to covid numbers Um, yeah yeah i mean the the encouraging thing about the covid numbers is throughout all this you know i kept thinking you know as the daily case numbers kept kept trending downward i kept thinking well you know it's we can't trust these numbers. People, you know, the testing isn't what it was before Ida, but we're also seeing the hospitalizations, a significant decrease in hospitalizations for COVID, um, which, you know, that's that that's harder to attribute to. Uh, you can't really attribute that to 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 a drop in testing. Yeah, and I was, I mean, we're a month out from the storm now, and you had had been seeing hospitalizations track um, outbreaks by three or four weeks before Delta, more like two weeks since Delta became the dominant variant. And so I would have expected to see a signal by now if we were seeing an undetected outbreak. Um, And so, uh, yeah, my, my read on the data is that it doesn't seem like the storm led to anything. And so then the question is why, why was that? Okay, Marta, thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, health reporter Philip Kiefer, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans' cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. The Lens is New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. That means we don't have to report to shareholders or CEOs. It means you can count on our work being of utmost integrity and a commitment to truth. To learn more about our work and the people who do it, sign up for our newsletter at thelensnola.org slash newsletters. Thanks. We'll continue on with Ida. And uh, last week, Philip, you talked about the limits on FEMA cash aid available to the immigrant community. Catch us up on that again. Yeah. So because of federal law dictating who can and can't receive um, basically cash welfare payments, um, many groups of immigrants in Louisiana, um, so undocumented immigrants, but also people with DACA status or temporary protective status, um, guest worker visa holders um, aren't eligible to receive cash FEMA aid. So things like critical needs assistance or many of the um, types of funding that people are going to rely on, you know, to buy generators, to buy sort of essential supplies for repair in the wake of the storm. Um, And then beyond the official exclusion basically what was described to me by activists um working out of immigrant communities was that you know there are all of these other barriers to aid beyond the um beyond just the legal there are language barriers there's just 
internet access. There's the fact that FEMA is a branch of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and so there's a huge trust barrier there for somebody who maybe, maybe has undocumented relatives, but is themselves um, eligible or vice versa. And so, you know, what was said to me was basically, think about how hard it is to get FEMA aid just as an English speaker who is a citizen, you know, we're seeing how hard it is for for that population. Then imagine all of these other barriers on top of that. Right. And in Homa, which was one of the hardest hit parts of the state, you spoke to some people who were trying to pull their lives back together. How How is it going for them? There was sort of this mix of optimism and resignation, right? It's hmm. people were saying, well, what else can I do but try to put things back together? There isn't this federal money available to me. I can't change the law. So, you know, I will sit down and work on this myself. And so the folks I talked to were saying, well, when I go back to work, some had started work, others hadn't or hadn't heard when work was going to start again. Um, they said, I'm going to start saving up the money to try to either repair my home or figure out where else to go. Um, but, you know, it was being described to me as this very piecemeal process where as money became available, they would start to cobble together some kind of recovery on their own. Mm. In, in last week's discussion and this week, you've talked about a, several organizations that have come in, organizations that are that are springing up organically also. Yeah, um, so that's sort of what this second story following off of last week's is about, which is that before the pandemic, there were some um, they're either described as mutual aid or community defense groups that had formed, especially within undocumented Spanish-speaking communities, to provide information about immigration raids and to provide, um, you know, money and just sort of resources and community support. And then during COVID, that kicked into higher gear as people lost their jobs or needed to figure out how to access testing and vaccines. And so you started to see these much more sort of widely known and robust mutual aid networks. And that's something you've seen in all sorts of communities across the country, but especially in New Orleans. Um, and then what I was told is that in the wake of Ida, those same networks have been sort of the front line of providing relief to the Spanish-speaking community. And you've seen that in English-speaking non-immigrant communities in New Orleans as well, but I think it's especially stark in the Spanish-speaking immigrant community because there isn't the same sort of outside layer of federal resources that can come in. I mean, for, you know, many people working on guest worker visas, in the Bayou region at fish processing plants, like mutual aid is where critical needs money and critical needs supplies are going to come from. There's not gonna be that 500 bucks, 1500 bucks if, um, if you're on a guest worker visa. Right. 
You also described, I thought it was really poignant the way you described how one family went into a place and they were allowed to pick out what what they in particular needed rather than being given a prepackaged help kit or something. I thought that was, it's so simple, but it sounded so much more effective. Well, and that's what was really striking to me about sort of the, the philosophy of mutual aid that I, I was being shown as opposed to a lot of the people I talked to made this very stark distinction with the idea of charity. Um, mm. And I think the the thing I would want to point out is that, you know, it wasn't even a question of allowed to or not. There was this, you had all these people kind of coming into this, so the one of the mutual aid networks in HOMA is sort of centered on the Terrebonne Parish NAACP headquarters, um, which is in the city of Homa. Um, the organization is sort of loosely organized by the Seafood Workers Alliance, which is a workers' rights group down there. Um, but it's, you know, as with a lot of mutual aid networks, pretty amorphous. Some people I talked to described it as the Alliance Network. Some didn't think of it that way. Um, but uh, you know, what was happening is people would come to the NAACP and they would say, hey, these are the things that we need. And then the people who were in a position to access resources in New Orleans, out of state, or who were just gathering individual donations, you know, in their personal Venmo or Cash App accounts would then figure out how to source those supplies. So what I was hearing from people organizing mutual aid was basically that they were there to just sort of respond to the needs described to them as they happen rather than mm. come in with resources. And the people who are doing that work, some of them are organizers who are outside of the community, but, um, or who just weren't as dramatically impacted. But also when I went to HOMA, the NAACP group was organizing work parties to go out and tarp roofs and that's the people doing that work are the same ones who will need their own roofs tarped pretty soon it's not um it was work being done by the community or sort of for the benefit of the community like a like a barn raising yeah and there was there were donations generators and what have you coming from outside the area but um the sort of needs were being established and then resources distributed um, was organic in a way that you just don't see from something like FEMA or an outside charity. The scale of need is pretty colossal, but also there was like a lot of joy and it's interesting to hold both of those things as not um, not exclusive, but sort of part of the, the same process. Thanks, Philip. You're welcome. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Crastle, Marta Jusen, Philip Kiefer, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.